0: morning. I want to welcome you again to Midlands Church. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 20 today. So we're going to read the first 26 verses of that to get started, uh, get started. Uh, we're going to get started, not started. Uh, so I invite you to stand and we'll read that together. Uh, Luke 21 through 26 will be on the screen behind me. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles. one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, What then is this that it is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you will strengthen me to teach it rightly today. Pray that you'll unite our hearts around it and open our hearts to believe you today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. But this week, we uh, marked the 54th anniversary of what is uh, undoubtedly one of the most significant moments in U.S. history, August 28th, 1963. uh, We had a nation that was very much divided, emotions were high, tension was rising, and at the center of it all, a single man marched up to the front before a large crowd of people convinced of God that he had a message for that moment. And on August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the famous I Have a Dream speech uh, that is is rightly remembered as one of the most important moments in our nation's history and and probably one of the greatest speeches of all time. Uh, I was reading some things about it this week and I saw where one analyst summarized it like this. He said, it was the right man... Delivering the right words to the right people in the right place at the right time. Now, what a what a legacy uh, for that speech. And I was reading a little bit about the anniversary this week, and I was struck by the parallels from that moment and the passage we just read. Now, very different situations, different people, different dynamics going on, but there's some really interesting parallels. You think about what we just read in Luke 20. Here's Jesus standing in Jerusalem, the nation's capital, and the nation is divided. People are not sure what to do with this man who's claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to bear a message from the Lord. Tensions are high. Emotions are rising. And then here comes a single man, steps to the center of the crowd, and delivers a message that he believes and is convinced. Has been given to him by God, and if ever those words could be applied to anyone, I think they can rightly be applied to Jesus. He spoke with the right words in the right way, at the right time, and we see the the uh, picture of that here in Luke 20. I don't know about you guys, but when I have personally been in moments where I am uh, talking with people who do not believe the things that we believe as Christians, who do not believe the gospel. Uh, would see themselves as outsiders to that faith and and even would be skeptical of the things uh, that we hold dear here as a church. I rarely have found that I said the right words at the right time. Uh, more often than not, I've said the wrong words that I felt like really made things a lot worse. Uh, or maybe I've thought of the right words several hours later uh, after the conversation has ended, uh, or, maybe I've thought of some good words and I've just kind of shrank in fear and been unwilling to say them. And yet here is Jesus in the midst of some serious hostility, as we're going to see. And he's completely engaging with the crowd. He addresses the issues they raise and other issues that they don't even realize are on their minds and hearts. And he clearly articulates his message in the midst of it all the right words in the right way at the right time. So I want to walk through this chapter this morning. And I I want us, uh, those of us who are Christians here today, I I want us to note especially what we can learn from the model Jesus sets here, uh, the example he sets for us of, of how believers can interact with and engage those who may be skeptical to the faith, may be skeptical to Christianity. Now, if, if you're with us this morning and you're in that latter category, I'm so glad you're here. I pray that this would be helpful to you. And I would just ask of you that you, you maintain an open mind and, and just seriously consider what did Jesus say to these people? What was going on in these moments? So let's walk through Luke 20 together And I think we can all learn a whole lot from the example of our Lord here. The chapter begins with a loaded question. Jesus is standing in the temple and uh, he's teaching the people there. This is a pretty significant moment in biblical history. You think about the Old Testament. uh, One of the ways that God uh, communicated to his people that he was judging them and they were experiencing consequences for their sin and rejection of him was the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. Ezekiel claimed to have seen that. Ezekiel 10, he tells us this vision he had where the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. Now here we have in this just a little casual detail, Jesus, whom the New Testament is going to call the image of the invisible God, uh, whom the New Testament will tell us the glory of God is seen clearly in His face. He Himself is the The glory of God. He's now in the temple. The glory has returned and he's teaching and preaching the gospel to these people. This is a very, very significant moment in biblical history. And yet the people there, particularly the leaders, the chief priests and scribes and elders, they don't see it as a glorious moment at all. Uh, They're not overwhelmed with the grandeur of the moment. Uh, They want to know where did this guy come from? And who is he to think he has the authority to say the things he does? In, in effect, they're asking him, who gave you the right to wreak such havoc with your teaching and your turning over tables and things that we read about last week? And so beginning in verse 3 there, Jesus answers their question with a question. Don't we all love when someone does that? Uh, but he points them to John, John the Baptist. And he says, well, let's, let's talk about John. Where did John get his authority? Was it from heaven or was it from man. He kind of puts the, the leaders two options before them, gives them two options, and they begin to demur and think about it together, and they realize they're kind of backed in a corner. If, if they say that John's baptism was from heaven, then the people are going to want to know, well, why did you reject him then? And it's going to look bad, badly on them. If they say that John's baptism was of man, that he was not sent from heaven, that he made it up, the people who hold him to be a prophet are going to want to stone them. And, and that doesn't mean they're just going like, to lose their minds and get angry. That would have been the, the literal Old Testament uh, penalty for calling a real prophet a false prophet. That's how the people of Israel would have handled that. And so they realize they don't really have an easy way out of it. But one thing to note about those leaders is they're not seeking truth in the moment. They're not genuinely considering Jesus' question. They're trying to save face before a crowd of people, right? And that's why I said uh, to any any of you who may uh, be here this morning who are not Christians, I would just encourage you and and ask you to maintain an open mind because it's so easy to just immediately fall into defense mode. And I think we see it here uh, with these folks. And so they don't give an answer. Uh, They kind of back down Basically say, we don't know. And Jesus says, okay, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you the, question, the answer to the question you asked me either. I don't think he's evading it. I don't think he's, he's trying to mess with them. I think what, he, what he's actually doing is he's trying to draw their attention to their hardness of heart. He's trying to help them see how they themselves have consistently rejected the messengers that God has sent to them and their forefathers. And they, they did it with John, and now they're doing it with Jesus. And he's trying to help them see that. And it brings us to the kind of first principle I want to I uh, draw our attention to. Uh, those of us who are Christians, as we think about engaging with skeptics and unbelievers, particularly people who may be hostile to the Christian faith, here's the first principle I want to point out. I'm gonna, I think I've got four of these. Number one is there's no such thing as generic unbelief. There's no such thing as generic unbelief. You see, as as believers, when we encounter someone who says they do not believe the gospel of Jesus, we have to be wary of just accepting that as some sort of generic category as if all unbelievers disbelieve the same things or for the same reasons. Uh, The reality is people do not disbelieve the gospel or reject Christianity or reject Jesus for objective reasons, as if they've considered all the claims and come to that conclusion. That's very rarely anyone's story. More often, they reject the message because it contradicts something that they already believe, right? And so you talk to someone who's not a Christian, and and you say to them, what do you think about the resurrection? Our scripture claims that Jesus was dead, and three days later, God raised him from the dead. And they say, well, that can't be true. Dead people don't come back to life, right? So that may or may not be true, but the point is it's not that they've sifted through all the evidence and come to that conclusion. It's that they've come into the conversation with a belief, something they're holding to, dead people don't come back to life. And so therefore, the resurrection cannot have happened, right? Uh, We can think of other examples as well. And as believers, we ought to be able to relate to this because we ought to be able to see in our own lives how when we sin, anytime we sin, that's essentially an act of unbelief is we're acting as if we don't believe the things we say we believe in that moment of sin. But anytime we, we do that, it's not just that we generically are not believing the gospel in that moment. We're always motivated by something else. And so it's, it's not just that we have committed the sin of greed in some moment. It's that we're being greedy because we're convinced that our identity is tied up in the possession of things and we see someone else having some thing and then by nature of having that thing, some level of identity or status or recognition from others and we want that status. So it's, it's not that we want that car or that job or that income level so much as we want that recognition from other people. As believers, we have to do that self-critically of ourselves and I think we bear the responsibility to help unbelievers process through that as well. So what is it that you disbelieve about the gospel? What is it that, that you're rejecting or why are you rejecting these things that Jesus is claiming? I think that's some of what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's, he's not satisfied to let them merely say, we don't think you're the Messiah, He's trying to draw out from their own hearts some of the reasons that they're holding to that claim. And for them, I think it came down to that whole issue of losing their authority and their identity. I think for these particular leaders, these are religious leaders in the Jewish community. They're respected by all. They're typically the guys teaching in the temple. And now there's a man teaching in the temple claiming that what they have said is wrong. He's denouncing them and denouncing their practices. You think they're threatened by that? Yeah. Do you think they're giving him an open ear? No way. They're concerned about their own identity. If Jesus is who he claims to be, where does that leave us? If this man is really bearing a message from God, it means we've got some major changes to make. And I'm not even sure who I am anymore. I'm not sure how these people are going to think of me if I start to make those changes. What if I admit I'm wrong about things I've previously said in a public setting? See, Jesus is trying to draw that out of them and and sort of point them in that direction. I think that becomes even more clear uh, when you look at that parable. So the parable is a fairly simple one. Uh, Beginning in verse 9 down through 18, uh, a man planted a vineyard. He let it out to tenant farmers. Then he went away for a while. Then he starts sending people to basically collect fruit from the land. This would have been a pretty typical uh, arrangement in the ancient Near East, we still do stuff like this where somebody will lease a farm to someone else and you, you kind of pay them somewhat from the fruit of the land. That may be part of the contract or something like that. But this particular parable has some Old Testament background. So Isaiah 5, uh, Yahweh, God, the Lord, talks about the, uh, the people of Israel as his vineyard that he has cultivated and he has pruned and he has groomed them to bear fruit. And in the context of Isaiah 5, he's telling them you're not bearing the fruit that you ought to be bearing. You're not producing uh, what I have created you and groomed you and cultivated you to produce. It's a little bit different here because uh, the vineyard, in the Old Testament, the vineyard is is Israel. Here, I think the farmers are clearly Israel. Um, But the expectation is the same, that the vineyard is gonna produce fruit and then the owner or the master of the vineyard is gonna benefit from that fruit. And in both Isaiah 5 and in Luke 20, we've got the same problem. The owner doesn't get what he thinks he should get from it. And so he sends his servants, see that in verse 11 and 12, and one, two, three different servants go, and the tenants reject them, and they treat them pretty mercilessly. And the not-so-subtle point Jesus is making in this context is to those leaders, this is how you and those whose footsteps you are following in treated the prophets, They were messengers from God. They were servants of God. They were sent to the vineyard of God, and he cast them out. He consistently rejected the prophets. So then the master, verse 13 there, we see the the heart of God. I think the master's God the Father here. We see the heart of the Father. We see his relentless patience. And we see him saying, okay, I'm going to send my beloved son That's clearly reference to Jesus. That's what the father calls Jesus at his baptism, at his transfiguration. I'm going to send my beloved son. He'll come with greater authority. Maybe, surely, they'll receive him. Surely, they'll listen to him. What happens? Same result. And in verse 14, it says, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, and we kind of hear their plan, and it's interesting because it doesn't actually make any sense whatsoever. I mean, here comes the son of the man who owns this land, whom we agreed to work for. Maybe if we kill his son, he'll let us inherit the land. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's nonsensical altogether. And yet it made sense to them because they weren't motivated by some sort of logic consideration of the situ- logical consideration of the situation. They're motivated by greed. Right? They're motivated by self-interest, getting what they want in the moment. In fact, if you look at verse 14 in the Greek, uh, the word hours is fronted. What that means is in, in Greek, you can kind of rearrange word order to make a point. And so if you put a word at the very front of the sentence, it's a way of emphasizing it. So if you translate that literally into English, it comes out sounding something like Yoda would say, ours will the inheritance be. That's what they say. Ours will the inheritance be. So what are, they, what are they doing? Are they processing a situation? No, ours will the inheritance be. It's a claim for greed. It's a, it's a claim for self-glory and self-gain. So what Jesus is trying to help them see is that their unbelief, those leaders in this moment in the temple, is ultimately rooted in self-interest. It's not thoughtfully considering all the options. It's what can I get out of this or what might I lose if I recognize this man as the Messiah, he's saying, You're just like these tenant farmers. Uh, as an aside, kind of a fascinating point here the son is murdered in the parable. But Jesus is telling this story. Clearly, the, the owner is the father. Clearly, he himself is the beloved son. Clearly, the people he is talking to are the tenant farmers. And he's saying, let me tell you a story where the people like you kill the guy like me. It's kind of a fascinating thing to think about. Obviously, he knew that was coming, and yet he, co- he continues on. And I think it injects some additional significance in that question he asked at the end of verse 15. Now, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to him, do to them? And he tells him in 16, he will destroy those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others that seems to have in mind the, the transfer of the kingdom from the Jews to the Gentiles into the nations. That's good news for all of us uh, who are not ethnically Jewish people. We are the Gentiles in that category. We're the ones to whom the kingdom has been opened up to in these latter days. We, we read stuff like that in Romans 10, Romans 11, Ephesians 2, places like that that help us understand that the kingdom of Jesus is going to have no ethnic prerequisites. You don't have to be a Jewish person to come in to this kingdom. The people are shocked, though. No shocker there. (laughs) He just basically told them, you guys are going to kill me soon, right? Uh, They're shocked. Surely not. I think the surely not is not that they're going to kill him. It's that the Father is going to judge them for killing him. And so he points them to the Old Testament. He goes to Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected... Has become the cornerstone. And <clears throat> Psalm eighteen, Psalm 118, the context there, it depicts a nation that's been rejected by the nations of God or the nations of the world, but then accepted by God. And you see the New Testament applying this language to Jesus. Though he will be rejected by the people, he will be accepted by God, and he will be used by God. But notice how he will be used. He will become the instrument of judgment. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This brings us to the second principle I want to share about if you're a Christian engaging with unbelievers, particularly those who may be harshly opposed to the gospel, is that loving skeptics requires speaking difficult truths. I think you'll always have to be speaking certain truths all the time, but it requires a willingness to speak these kinds of things. And I think this is especially important in our day when many who are skeptical of Christianity will want to claim that Jesus himself would never do this. And Jesus was about love. He was a loving and kind teacher. He's not about casting people out and saying you're not welcome. He, he said, everyone can come to me. And we have to evaluate that. Is, is that true? Did Jesus say anyone could come to him? Yeah, come to me, all who are weary and burdensome. We've, we've seen this throughout the gospel of Luke. You can come to Jesus regardless of your age. So we've seen children come to him. You can come to Jesus regardless of your gender. We've seen women come to him in that society. That would have been a particularly big deal. Uh, you can come to Jesus regardless of your ethnicity. We've seen Jew and Gentile people from throughout Galilee. Come to him. You can come to Jesus regardless of your social class. We've seen the rich come to him. We've seen the poor come to him. All can come to him. But what is also abundantly clear when you give the Gospels a fair reading is that you must come to him to receive life. And when you do, you must come to not only his love, but also his leadership. And that requires a certain amount of dying to yourself and coming under his rule. And if you don't, the Scriptures make very clear, and the lips of Jesus Himself declare over and over and over in moments that would be so awkward we cannot possibly imagine if we put ourselves in this temple moment, if you don't, you will face judgment from God. And lest we think that Jesus didn't talk like that or people didn't perceive Him to say things like that when we read that Through the text today, we can look no further than this passage. I mean, these skeptics, these leaders, they hear Jesus say, if you reject the stone, me, you will be broken to pieces. And then look at verse 19. They sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against him. Okay, so those religious leaders... They did not hear that message from Jesus and think this is a kind and loving teacher who welcomes all with no stipulations. They rightly recognized he is saying if we don't come to him we will be judged by God and that made them want to kill him. Right? So we we have no room to say that Jesus never said stuff like this if we're given these kinds of passages an honest reading. So they want to kill him. So what do they do? They set a trap. And that brings us to that last section, uh, beginning verse 19. Uh, they, they recognize they can't just ambush Jesus in front of a crowd, so they decide to send in a spy. Uh, things begin to get more subversive here. And the spy comes in verse 21 and asks Jesus a question just sort of dripping with flattery. I have trouble not reading this with some sort of mocking, patronizing voice because it is just hard to take seriously when he says, Teacher, We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality and truly teach the way. Like, I I just can't believe the guy took himself seriously as he was saying that. But clearly he thought he was being clever because he was on board as a spy there. And then he asked the question. And this question means almost nothing to us today as non-Jews not living in Rome. But it was a hugely emotional question to those people in that moment. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not. I'll explain to you why it was important to them. The Jews were living under Roman rule, and what this guy is basically asking Jesus to decide is, are you with us, or are you with them? See, they had to pay this regular poll tax to the, uh, to the Roman government, uh, Caesar being the representative head of that, and they didn't like it. It was a reminder to them that they were not a free people, that they were under someone else's rule. And so Jesus it seems like he's backed in a corner here. If he says, yeah, you've got to pay the tax, then it's going to sound like he's siding with the Romans. And he's he's not a faithful Jew or he's unsympathetic to their plight. But if he says, no, we're Jews, we don't have to pay the Roman tax. They're going to turn that around. They're going to turn that into authorities and he's going to be in trouble quick with the Romans, right? Because now we have an insurrection on our hands. So what's Jesus going to do? Well, before we look at that, I want to share the third third principle. Third thing I, I note here in terms of how uh, what we have to, what we can learn from how to engage with skeptics. Uh, the third principle is this. Beware of oversimplifying issues. Beware of oversimplifying issues. It is so easy to do that in the context of these sorts of conversations when people are decidedly against each other at the outset. Do you believe in creation, or do you recognize the undeniable findings of thousands of sciences, scientists? Do you support reproductive rights, or do you want to bring shame on women and take away their freedom? Do you believe people should get to love whom they want to love, or are you content to be on the wrong side of history? Those are but a few of the emotional kind of questions like that uh, that sort of populate our conversations today. I think this was that sort of question in that moment. Again, it doesn't... None of our heart rates rose when, when the guy asked, you know, should we pay tribute to Caesar? We're like, I don't care. I don't know who Caesar. Is. He's been dead a long time. But imagine he asked one of those questions. And you think, oh man, <laughs> how's Jesus going to answer this, right? Well... We shouldn't be surprised by those sorts of questions. I, I want just, to just say in general, I don't think we should be offended by them either. But, but we have to be wary of oversimplifying the categories and, and just dividing the lines into this or that. And as believers, if I, if I can talk to those of us that would self-identify as Christians real quick, we have to acknowledge that sometimes we can be just as guilty of sort of reflexively dismissing those on the sort of other side of whatever issue we're standing on. You know, we we can all be guilty of sort of building this straw man opponent where they think this, they think that, how could they think this? And then you actually get to know some people that are over here on a political issue or some hot button issue of the day and you realize they don't actually believe all those things I've accused them of and rejected them for all this time. And so we have to be careful of that. And, And I want to acknowledge... To those of you who are here who maybe are not a Christian this morning, I want to acknowledge, even in the context of a message like this, I'm painting with a really broad brush to say skeptics in general. And I realize every person has a different reason for not considering themselves a follower of Christ, for not believing the gospel and submitting their lives to Jesus. And I'm speaking in general categories, even as we're talking about these things. And so uh, we don't we just don't want to be guilty of that as Christians, just dividing everybody into this or that category and then kind of dismissing them all without listening. The point of the, all that is to say complex issues deserve careful thought. And, and sometimes this bifurcation of an issue into two separate categories is just not sufficient. I think that's some of what happens here in Jesus's response. Uh, He clearly sees through their plot. He knows what they're trying to do, and he's not going to let them trap him. Uh, But he also gives a principled answer that to me feels like kind of stepping back and addressing the bigger picture and refusing to be bound by these two categories. And and I've found on each of those three things I just mentioned uh, and other hot-button issues of the day that we could all supply with our own imaginations, Typically the best Christian answers, if we could use that as an adjective in that case, the best Christian answers are those that step back and, and clearly assess all sides and not just those who run to a corner and begin to kind of shout the things that everyone else shouts. And so Jesus sees through their plots. He gives a, a principled answer and he says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What that amounts to basically is he affirms the God-ordained existence of the state He affirms its right to function. He said, look, it's not wrong for the state to exist. It's not wrong for the state to function and even tax its people so as to be able to function. And what he doesn't address there, and we have to be careful, he doesn't address the limits of state power. Like, where do we draw that line? And he doesn't address how believers are to handle situations when the state is asking them or commanding them or legalizing them to do something that they are Ethically and morally opposed to. Okay, that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I think we could go to other places in the New Testament to explore those questions in the Old Testament as well, uh, but that's not what Jesus is saying. He's just merely saying the state can exist, and the fact that the state exists does not necessarily put it in opposition to God. And so we shouldn't have these two basic categories. Are you with the Romans? Are you with the Jews? Are you for the state or are you for God? This is far more complex than that. And I love the way he shows it to him because he gets a coin. He asks for a denarius. and He says, who's on the cover there? And clearly he's using that to bring up his point about Caesar. But I think what he's also doing is he's helping them see that they actually agree with him in principle in some way because every single one of them has Roman currency in their pockets. So what what he's getting at is he's saying, look, you guys don't want to throw over, you don't want to throw off the government altogether. You act, actually benefit from it a great deal because this little piece of metal holds value for trade and commerce and business. And if we became anarchists and just threw them all off, all of a sudden these are rocks and we can't do anything with them, right? So what, what he's saying to them is look, you're okay with Roman leadership and Roman rule in certain situations. The, the question is just, where are you not okay with it, right? And so again, he's trying to give them a bigger picture there. But I think he's also doing uh, the fourth thing I want to point out in terms of principles for how believers can uh, effectively and, and caringly engage with those who disagree with us. Because I think we have to find common ground. We have to find common ground. Don't, don't begin with what we have in opposition, but figure out what we have in common first. Maybe we're not as far apart as we've seen. Now, that doesn't mean we surrender our convictions or we toss out the scripture when it runs into some cult- current cultural wave of thought. But I think it does mean that we can help others see how their beliefs actually overlap with Christianity. And then we can even ask them the all-important question, why? And why does that matter? Let me give you an example of that to wrap up. Uh, we Earlier in the service, we prayed for uh, folks uh, down in Houston, surrounding cities who have been devastated by Hurricane Harvey and all the rain that has followed. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but for me, uh, I felt like this past week, as a nation, we were perhaps more united than we had been in any time I can remember, except maybe since the last uh, epic natural disaster, right? Uh, we're coming off a season or we're pretty much in the midst of a season uh, where people are running to their corners. They're sort of shouting things at others. No one's listening to anyone. No one's talking about commonality. And then something really horrible happens. And all of a sudden, my liberal friends and my conservative friends and all my friends in the middle all want to do the same thing. We all want to help these poor people that have lost so much in Houston. Now, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. But here's the thing that we have to ask as thinking Christians. Why do we all want to do that? Why do all of us want to help those people? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me ask you the question, why do you want to help them? I know why I want to help them. I want to help them because the Scriptures teach those people were created in the image of God. The Scriptures teach they were created to know God to enjoy Him, to live a life of abundant flourishing before Him. And when I see people wading through the streets of their city with all they have, all they can carry on their back and holding their kids up out of the water with water up to their chest, it breaks my heart. Because these people are created in the image of God. They're created to know God and flourish. And that seems incredibly difficult in that scene. But why do you care? I mean if 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 we're not created and there's no God, why do we care about these people? I mean if if we if we've all descended from some sort of primordial ooze and we've just kind of come to this point via natural selection, evolution, however that has happened, however you put those things together, and again I'm not I'm not trying to belittle or build a straw man there. I'm just saying, if that's your theory of how we got here, why do we care about these people? Is this perhaps natural selection happening before us? I mean, why does it matter? If we're free to love anyone we want to love, and love is merely defined by how I feel in a particular moment, who tells me I have to love these people? What if a politician came out tomorrow and said, I don't think we should do anything for them. We would unite as a nation against that person. But why would we do that? What is it that draws us together? And and here's the question I have for you if, if you're not a Christian. Does your worldview, does your set of beliefs, does how you think about these things actually support how you feel? in a moment like that. It's right for us all to care deeply about those people. My heart is broken for them. I've got friends in the area. I've got a buddy who's posting videos on Facebook of the water rising and the buildings on the street where his church meets going down. And I'm checking every morning to see if his church is still there. Another buddy who's texting me, they haven't had water in a few days. They got electric last night, and and we're just praying for them that they would survive this, that they would be able to be okay. And these are just the couple of people I know personally. There are millions I don't know personally, and and yet I I care about them, and I think it's right for all of us to care about them. But the the question I have for you, if if you're not a Christian, if if you don't believe these things that Jesus teaches in His Word, why would you care? You do, and it's right for you to. But does your beliefs, do your beliefs, does your set of beliefs actually support the things you really do care about? And it's how we find common ground. And I think that's some of what Jesus is doing here in flipping that coin in the air before them He's saying, look, you guys already, we're on the same page here. We don't all want to throw off everything about the Romans, but why don't you want to throw off everything about the Romans? There are some things that are good here and it jingles in your pocket as you walk. And so let's acknowledge that as we're talking about these other things. Well, let me wrap this up. Uh, I would just say as we as Christians uh, engage ourselves in conversations like this, I want to be real clear, our goal is not to win arguments. Our goal is to reach people with the gospel. Uh, we want to be clear about we wanna, what we believe and what Jesus has said because we believe there are eternal issues at stake here. And those things are of utmost importance and they require the utmost clarity. And it may seem that it's getting more and more difficult with each passing week to have conversations like this and and not be embroiled in hostility. Uh, I think this passage, if anything, can remind us that there's nothing new under the sun. People have always been opposed to the message of Jesus. The, The gospel message has always been preached in the context of hostility. And if we're not sure what to do or not sure what to say in a given moment, invite us to look to Jesus. He's, He's not just the theme of our message. He's also the model of how to engage others. Kindly, winsomely, compassionately, boldly, truthfully. He said the right words in the right way at the right time. May we learn to do the same. We're going to turn out a communion. Uh, it's available at the back of the room at the tables. Uh, we do this every week here at Midlands. This is an opportunity for believers to uh, confess again and remind ourselves of our faith in Jesus, God's work for us on our behalf in Christ. Uh, if, you, if you're not a Christian, uh, we just encourage you not to participate in this part. We, we want you to hear the sermon and, and consider those things and I would invite you to reflect on that in this time. But this particular part of the service is, is actually just for Christians because it's a, it's a family time where we gather around these things uh, that are so dear to us. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and then the band will come and play. And, and uh, as soon as I'm done praying, you're, you're welcome. The table's open. You're welcome to go and take these uh, elements together. Um, Christians, I would just encourage you, maybe before you get up, we've talked a lot about engaging others with the gospel this morning, uh, maybe take a moment and pray for more opportunities to do that. Uh, if there are particular people that have come to mind as we've talked about some of these things, maybe pray for that person. Um, or if you've been convicted by certain aspects of Jesus' example, like, oh, man, I don't do that well. Uh, just encourage you to pray and ask God's help in that way. Let's pray. Lord, you're a good God. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your grace uh, in sending him and your kindness in opening our hearts to believe and trust in him. For for any among us today who are not convinced of his claims, I pray that you would open their hearts and open their minds to consider him. Uh, may they not be uh, distracted or put off by anything I or any other... Christian has said to them um, in the past or even today, but uh, may they see Jesus for who he is, for who he claimed to be, and may they consider him anew even now in these moments. Help us as a church to uh, speak the gospel with clarity, with conviction, and with compassion as we go uh, to the world around us. May it be to your glory. Amen.